And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Welcome to those of you watching us on YouTube. As you probably have noticed, immediately we're wearing the same shirt for some reason. (laughs) Just a plain gray shirt. What's up with that? We called each other and made sure we were wearing the same thing. Apparently, that was uh, it's part of the the new new order around <laughs> here, I guess. But on this episode, we recap some of the fallout from the trade deadline that, of course, passed on Tuesday. We talked a lot about the deals as they as they were sort of happening and, and being confirmed after the deadline on the three O show. So you can check that out as well. But we were kind of looking through the depth charts, trying to make sense of some players that have either been released or players that are going to quietly play a bit more as a result of departed players. Uh, but we have a, a no hitter to talk about today before we get into all that from Valdez on a day where most Astros fans were just really excited that Justin Verlander was coming back to Houston. From Valdez comes out and throws a no hitter. He does it with 90 three pitches so yeah it was a Maddox it was the third fewest pitches thrown at a no hitter since pitch counts have been tracked I think that's since like 1988 so an extremely efficient no-no for Valdez everything was working especially the curveball and every time we talk about Framber Valdez I look at the rest of season projection versus the results and usually the rest of season projection is considerably worse than what he's done so far that's still the case even though we're now sitting with four seasons of Valdez pitching at a really consistently high level. I mean, this year he's got a 26% K rate. He's got a 6.1% walk rate, which is the longest full or the best full season walk rate of his career. He had a 5.6 back in 2020, but we're talking about 135 innings now this season. This is just amazing. The transformation of Valdez over time as a guy that used to have consistently high walk rates to someone who's also improved that facet of his game uh, he's he's just really turned into a front line sort of starter even if he's not an ace and i know that word is is now frowned upon is it an ace doesn't matter he's one of those guys that you want out there when it counts yeah and you know i, I love the addition of the cutter but uh this is saying that uh he is not he threw four in that uh, no hitter and that it wasn't uh, that much of an addition. I I don't know about that. I don't know. He throws, I guess it's uh, sometimes maybe hard to distinguish uh, from the the curve when the curve, when he throws the harder curve that's like a little bit more pinpoint at like 85 because the cutter is 85.6 according to Baseball Savant. Um, but I do like the addition of the curve of the cutter generally. I think that's just uh, led to the additional whiffs and uh, strikeouts, uh, second best strikeout rate of his career. Um, you know, it has led to a little bit fewer ground balls as he's gone for those whiffs, but still at 54%, still really excellent. Uh, 
Um, I don't know. You know, his his career now, 331 ERA, 122 whip, uh, and his projections are for basically a 315 ERA and a 120 whip. So uh, I guess it's pretty easy to see where that comes from. But that also includes 2019, where he had a 586 ERA for 70 innings. And that seems so far away. That seems like it has nothing to do with who he is now. Yeah, he just seems a little bit underrated. And part of the package this year has been increased velocity, too. That was something Mm -hmm. I was not counting on at all for Valdez. We're talking about a guy who's 29 years old already. So we're at that point in his career where you expect the velo to sort of plateau or just continue to drop a little bit year over year. But seeing him averaging 95.5 on his sinker, I mean, that's really nice to see. Yeah, that's true. I, I do wonder what that means long term. I mean, at 29, you would expect the, uh, the aging curve to suggest that the velo will go down, to, down after this. But he's had success with less velo and so yeah. much of what he can do. Part of what I think cushions a possible meltdown in the long run is that Framber Valdez gets a lot of ground balls. It's interesting that this is the worst, air quotes, worst ground ball rate mm-hmm. of his career at 54%. So there is something different about his approach do you like this version better than maybe the guy we saw two years ago with the 22% K rate, but the 70% ground ball rate? These trade-offs seem to me like a net positive, but do you agree with that? I do think so. Uh, it looks like he's uh, throwing a little bit at the top of the zone uh, uh, more than he used to. Uh, and I would assume those are some cutters and uh, maybe even some high sinkers. But, uh, you know, the research might be split on that. Uh, If you look at Sierra, for example, I remember the research for Sierra said that once you get past 60% ground balls, you really get a a great return on your BABIP. You start to expect a lower BABIP once you get past 60% ground balls. And you shouldn't expect that for somebody in the 50 to 55 range, that somehow 60 was a bit of a shelf. and I think you see that a little bit, uh, although you will see that his Sierra, when he had a 70% ground ball rate um, and a 21.9% strikeout rate, was 379. This year he has a 54% ground ball rate and a 26% strikeout rate, and Fromber's Sierra is a 342. So um, I think uh, that is a little bit of a suggestion that, yes, the trade-off has been good for him. And generally, I'm pro-whiff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, always pro whiff when uh, <laughs> when faced with the alternatives. This uh, no hitter also came on the heels of two pretty bumpy starts. One particularly bad outing last time out against the Rangers. Gave up six earned, eight hits, three and two thirds innings. Probably his worst start of the season. Actually, probably easily the worst start of the season mm-hmm. for him. But a nice little and then turnaround. That start against the Anaheim. You know, he had two and he had basically his his worst three start uh, stretch this year and maybe for a while. I mean, 15 earned runs in uh, 15 innings. Yeah, but 13 Ks against the Angels in that first start coming out of the break, too. So uh, this version of Framber Valdez, even a little bit better than the other recent versions, which have been pretty consistently, I would say, underrated as part of all this. Dude, against Anaheim this year? Oh, that's lovely. Against Anaheim this year, he has 32 strikeouts uh in 21 innings man he's tearing them <laughs> he up. has their number <laughs> that's impressive wow. yeah 
So on to some other things that happened, some fallout from this deadline. We were excited about Dominic Canzone getting an opportunity in Seattle. They pretty quickly put him in the middle third of their order. So we're going to see this. A little up and down, though. Defensively, he had some miscues. Didn't ah, quite one. show in the box score, but he led. some of his defensive miscues led to runs. Nevertheless, right? They're going to see what he, he started. Yeah, and he and he got a hit, I think. So I think as a result of Canzone and then Josh Rojas getting there, they decided to DFA Colton Wong. And then you look at the DH first base outfield depth situation. Teoscar Hernandez did not start on Tuesday. I don't really think there was a particular reason for that. Maybe there's a minor injury or something that wasn't or reported. Or maybe he was on the block and, you know, they might have been ready to go to the airport sort of deal. Right. So I assume since he's still there, they're going to keep playing him. And that means one of Cade Marlowe or Mike Ford would have to lose time if they're going to play Teoscar Hernandez every day. But Colton Wong gets bumped off the roster. Uh, as you kind of look through the depth chart that's left over for Seattle, do you see any other winners or losers of note? Well, the Colton Wong thing is a real interesting one because you you think, okay, uh, that means that second base, uh, there's some opportunity there. And uh, I guess Josh Rojas being the lefty and Jose Caballero uh, being the righty, I guess Josh Rojas is going to get some burn. Uh, I don't know why or who should pick him up. I'm not sure anybody but Mono League should pick him up. If it's an everyday role, I could see the case for him getting back into some of the leagues where he was rostered previously. but. We're talking about a guy that's gone 60 games this season without a homer. He is 6-for-6 six six as a base dealer, but a 287 OBP. I mean, everything in the slash line under a 300 right now. 25% hard hit is like one of the lower numbers I've seen. Yeah, it's a it's a big reset for him, and he's been chasing outside the zone more. Just everything going the wrong direction. So I think it is more of a, a wait-and-see situation for Rojas, even though he's been a player that has drawn interest in mixed leagues in the past. I think they could mix and match with Caballero, whose playing time was already down before this trade compared to where it was. It has to be a daily league, I think, because Caballero is still there against righties, and so is Dylan Moore, and I can't assume that they're going to play. Because even even uh, Arizona stopped playing against lefties when he was playing well. So yeah, it has to be a deeper daily league before you make that move. So you look at, you know, Wong was DFA'd. We learned that Gene Segura was part of the Josh Bell trade. He was quickly released by the Guardians. The implications of that are just probably balancing out the player option on Josh Bell's contract for 2024. So the Guardians had to eat something, it sounds like, based on that swap. Wong, Segura, and then Trey Mancini also DFA'd by the Cubs. Do you think there's any chance that one of those three players will end up finding enough playing time somewhere else to become fantasy relevant again beyond mono leagues over the final two months? Uh, the Red Sox are playing Christian Arroyo at second. Have Luis Arias in the minors. Could they pick up Segura? They They've been playing could. Justin Turner there. I think Segura, because they traded for Urias, I think Segura becomes redundant. Had they not made that trade, I think that fit would be there. I don't think he makes sense for like the White Sox or Nationals. The Brewers are listed as, ooh, that'd be fun. A reunion. Back to the Brewers? I mean, right now, the Brewers' second base situation is listed as 29th in the big leagues, led by Bryce Turing. All glove right now. And speed but really there for his defense. 
the real question is if if Andrew Monasterio is still on the roster, and I think he is, then that means there's a roster slot there where you could you. I think Toro's on the roster slot on the roster right now too. So those are two guys you can option. I think uh, I'm pretty sure you can. And if you can option one of those guys and put Zagura in there, it might be a good idea. Just a guy to to put some balls in play and you know be a little bit more stick first than glove first. I mean, a lot of these guys have under 300 woba projected wobas. You look at the the Giants as I think it's going to be a team that's in the middle battling for a playoff spot. The Giants, the Angels, the Angels have Is a ton he better of than Isan Diaz? Yes. Yeah, probably. And Isan Diaz has been playing. Maybe a reunion with the Phillies just for depth even though you you know, you're still playing you're playing Bryson Stott because he's playing really well. They traded Rodolfo Castro to the Phillies? Oh, yeah, for Bailey Falter. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So they probably aren't adding a middle infielder there. Right, so I don't think it's the Phillies. But, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Giants or Brewers, those, that's my prediction. And would he register enough? I don't know. I think with the Giants, he once uh, Tyro Estrada's back, I'm not sure how much he plays. And with the Brewers, I think that would be actually one of the best places. He could actually play a fair amount if they decide to start games with Segura and end them with Bryce Turing. Yeah, I think managing the roster is going to be a little bit tricky for the Brewers once they get healthy because I was trying to dig a little more into the why would they trade Luis Arias like, to why Boston? Why is Monasterio and Toro up? Because both those guys can be optioned, but if they are to be optioned for healthy people, then then that doesn't help you very much if, to, for adding Segura. Then you have to drop Owen Miller to, to get Segura. So Owen Miller has already been optioned or just was optioned oh. as a result of them adding some players to the deadline. But now you've got Rowdy Telez and Jesse Winker on the IL. Once they come back, you got to make room. That's Monasterio and Toro? Probably, but I, I also... But who else is to second base eligible? <laughs> like who can play second base other than Turing on the roster other than Monasterio and Toro? Yeah, with, with the changes they've made, that's, that's the list, I, I think, at this point. So, you know, there might be an opportunity there. The question is, could Segura be better than Monastero and Toro? And I think so. Yeah. Yeah, having options left might work against those guys. And I also think you have to decide when you, how do you build a bench? How do you build a roster? Can you have Carlos Santana, Roddy Telez, and Jesse Winker all on the same <laughs> roster, given that Winker's not really an outfielder? And then Santana and Rowdy are your first base DH combo. I bet it's, I bet it's the ghost IL for Jesse Winker the rest of the way. That he's got the seemingly legitimate back issue again right now. That's got him on the IL. But it'd be like I just like a high bar for him to return in a way. Like be like, we really need to see you like you know hit something 110. You know. <laughs> right, right, right. The other th- question you threw out there on the stream yesterday that I didn't really have a, a clear answer on was will Tyler Black possibly get a look? I don't know if Tyler Black defensively is at a level where they would want to play him on the infield. That seems to be the the knock oh, on him. That's the question. Might and be a little more of an outfielder. Man. Yeah, and there's the 40-man question as well. Now, they've played him mostly at third base at AA so far this year, so it's certainly not impossible. They're playing not in the spot where they the could use him. Man. Yeah, but if you're going to DFA someone like Winker, then you've got mm. a 40-man spot that way. So that's the type of, of thing that could happen. You could see maybe maybe an infielder end up there. Mancini is someone that we liked a little bit going into the season just because the the downturn in production last year 
it, it didn't come with underlying numbers that fell apart, right? I mean, the K rate was still fine at 23%. The barrel rate, 9.5% was right in line with his career norms. I'm surprised it didn't go better for him in Chicago this year. And I, I got to think there's a team willing to find some playing time for Trey Mancini over these final two months just to see if they can catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah, but is it going to be a competitor or a rebuilder? Like, could it be the A's just like looking to catch somebody? Um, but why would the A's do that? Because oh, would he actually still, he would still be under contract for them at the league minimum for next year, I think. Yeah. Oh, this is coming up again. It's not an option though. It's not an option. Right. Right? It it's was a, an actual deal. It's an actual two-year deal. So if the A's pick him up and he plays well, they could play him again next year at the league minimum. Right. He'll be 32 next season. So maybe for a rebuilding team, given how little a player like this tends to get for you in trade, maybe, maybe you don't use a roster idea. spot that way. Yeah. So maybe it again it goes back to some of our our mid-pack, you know, teams with 30 to 70% playoff odds. What about Trey Mancini in pinstripes for the Yankees? People are upset about what the Yankees did at the trade deadline. Do you think they could just find a a spot on that roster to squeeze him in? He's right-handed, right? And 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 we were looking for some a right-handed jockey for Jake Bowers in New York. And I think that the other place that we were looking for a right-hander uh, was the Twins. Um, a right-hander to pair with uh, Joey Gallo or Matt Walner, whoever's uh, starting in that that corner, um, or Max Kepler, who uh, you know is somebody that's been platooned. Um, so. A little bit of an awkward fit there since they're basically only DHing Buxton, and Buxton's a right-hander. So why you would you would need Mancini to play in the field? Yeah, I think you'd rather play him only at first base. If you do it, you don't want to put him in the outfield. So I think that probably narrows down the the possible fits for him. The Cubs played him I think five times in the outfield, and only three of those games were starts, so it was not very often. That was mm. basically a First base DH over 73 out of those 78 games. So. I don't know, man. Like, I don't know how interested I am. Because even if he does, he's a right-hander. He might he might just be in a small time, small side platoon. I'm... It's so strange how this player type, I think Luke Voigt kind of fits the same bill. It falls he's, off so he's quickly. He's socking the ball in the minors, too, and he just can't get a shot. I mean, yeah, righty, righty, you know, first baseman. It's just not something that people want too much of. I think I think you know generally people don't love the idea of platooning at first base. Is that possible? Yeah, it's because one of places they just want to have a guy, one guy. Because a lot of times those players don't play anything else all that they don't well. Have any defensive versatility? Yeah, yep. like if you have a right-handed guy who can play second and third, or or I love these infielder outfielders that are right-handed, right? Like I thought if there was any value for Tony Kemp at the deadline, it was just the fact that he could play the infield and the outfield and was right-handed. You know, they're they're usually there's something you can carve out for yourself being that. Yeah, I think the the downside to the Mancini Yankees plan is that you've got Rizzo and Stanton at first base in DH. So unless you're going to move Giancarlo Stanton into the outfield, sometimes that's going to be a tricky place to find mm-hmm. enough playing time for him too. Even though adding a bat there could could be helpful, linking that line. If there's something left in the tank for Mancini, that's part of the conversation too. Is there any reason to believe that there is one more productive season there? Or the Guardians, if they don't want to call up comments. Well, okay. So he's much less blocked in Cleveland 
anyway. And then, of course, that Bell trade, sending Bell to Miami, opens things up quite a bit. They played David Fry there. They played David Fry there, and I just... That was... that You know, some things happen on the day of the deadline that I don't think are necessarily indicative of what's going to happen. So, yes, they played David Fry at first base on the deadline. He's a catcher. I mean, at least his bat is a catcher level bat. So um, I don't know. Do you think they're going to continue playing David Fry at first base? You know what? David Fry at least has made hard contact at AAA, 51.4% hard hit rate there this year. He's a little old, of course. He's already 27. Very limited sample with Cleveland, 13.5% barrel rate. I mean, there are teams have given worse players than David Fry opportunities, but that is not when when you look you look for an excuse to not play Kyle Manzardo and Cleveland like you're you're there you can still win the AL Central I think you could probably justify some kind of platoon bring up Manzardo let Manzardo play against all the righties play David Fry against the lefties and you can be one of those teams that does that because at least David Fry has that that catcher, catcher backup option yeah. so I I think that's probably that's probably a realistic sort of outcome. Are you going to be trying to stash Kyle Manzardo going into the weekend in your redraft leagues? Is he a contingency bid sort of player for you where you say, you know what, there's a good enough chance this happens. I want to burn my one extra bench spot, if you have one, hoping for a call-up. Yeah, I mean, I like him, I think, better than maybe consensus on him because... Yes, people are really concerned with the 442 slugging for Manzardo, but I see a 48.5% hard hit rate and a 111.9 max EV and say, I don't know, power looks like it's in there. 45% fly ball rate. So he's doing all the process things to create power and they all line up with what he's done before, you know, without having knowledge of what his hard hit rate was in double A or high A, you know? Um, so to me, it looks like uh, he's in a good spot. This is a team that uh, was on the receiving end of that no-hitter, right? Yeah. Did not look like a good lineup. I mean, that's the thing with putting David Fry there. Sure, you know, it could work. I mean, I think it could work a little better for a team that had a really good lineup everywhere else and was like, hey, we're going to put a back, we're going to have a catcher who also plays first base. You know, that's great. This team is also starting Miles Straw in center, you know, and right now, you know, Arias in at short. And those are automatic outs like when it came to the ninth inning it was fry aria straw and i said he's got it that's uh that's a weak weak bottom of the order right now in cleveland so i'm kind of talking myself into manzardo actually getting a call up that he probably wasn't going to get if the rays had actually held on to him through this deadline looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get to a few other things here. The Marlins, with their more crowded depth chart, are there any surprising losers as you start to shuffle the new players in? Getting Garrett Cooper uh, out of the roster picture, sending him to San Diego, I think was sort of necessary just to make all these pieces fit because you added Josh Bell, added Jake Berger. Who loses as a result of this? And this comes with Jazz Chisholm recently getting healthy too. So infield and outfield looking a little stronger in Miami after the moves. Yeah, uh, Josh Bell has, he has a switch hitter, uh, but he has a large, large sample now, and he slugs better against righties, um, and so there may just be uh, a bit of a platoon there with uh, Guriel. Guriel is, let me just check my math, a righty, yes, I was correct, so that could be a a traditional platoon, really, Um, although... They don't have a straight-up DH every time. Yes, Jorge Soler plays there, uh, but he also plays in the outfield. Again, I'm checking my math. He has played in the outfield 24 times this year. So I think there's going to be... Bell's going to get 80% playing time. Uh, Gurriel's going to get like 33% playing time. Uh, So if you were betting on him to sort of... He was kind of taking over some of uh, Garrett Cooper's playing time. Uh, before I was noticing because I had to pick up Garrett Cooper in a fit of desperation. Um, so I would say that Grill uh, is a little bit of a loser because Bell, I think they're going to play Bell. Yeah, I, I think the big side platoon to Bell makes a lot of sense there. I don't think they want to play Soler a ton in the outfield. Avi Garcia's back from the IL as well. So you look at the lineup they rolled out on Tuesday. It's- Ooh. Jesus Sanchez has been dealing with an injury of some sort, but also not playing. And you look at the depth charts now, and he's not number one on any depth chart piece. Right. And it's so strange. Like, Jazz got a day off on Tuesday, so Sanchez played in center field. Like that's that, that was a De La Cruz Garcia Sanchez outfield. Wow. No, no, they didn't. So that was against a lefty. Really interesting configuration. That must have been that must have been like a late scratch or something because they don't prefer to play Sanchez against lefties. But Sanchez has been twelve percent better than league average with a stick. He hits the ball hard. and He doesn't even strike out that badly. Like I'm a little surprised that he'd be on the short end of the stick. No, I, I think I think De La Cruz is a player that loses some time, even though they've been using him in the heart of that order. Look at the overall body of work this year. Tell me, tell me, Brian De La Cruz isn't going to lose playing time with with all of these changes really close to league average and a righty maybe sanchez takes over uh the the two-thirds part of a platoon with brian de la cruz yeah so i think if you've been relying on brian de la cruz you really want to keep an eye on the playing time going Dropped into the weekend in especially dynasty this last week probably the right call this is it's average in power run production 
decent run scored total and maybe the better counting stats these final two months on a per game basis, but that gets offset by playing less as a result of a healthier group of position players. I did like what the Marlins did overall. I mean, nothing overwhelming, nothing too splashy. Um, Khalil Watson being included in that trade, you know, as, as a player that I said it on the stream, he doesn't fit the mold of what you expect Cleveland's prospects to to be like. Um, the good news is Khalil Watson, after a really high K rate last year at low A, 35.5%, has cut that to 28% at high A this year. So some improvements there, even though the slash line is still pretty bad. 206, 337, 362, but he's still young for the level. I'm really curious to see if this changes anything with Khalil Watson once he eventually advances to double A. I think it's going to tell us a lot about what his long-term future really looks like. I think for the Guardians, the return didn't matter. And so they just, you know, took the most interesting name on whatever list the Marlins showed them. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? <laughs> like, they were really just trying to get out from under the Josh Bell money. And they got out from under $16.5 million of Josh Bell for $8 million of Segura. So they got they, they cleaned up $8 million and somehow ended up with Kill Will Watson. You know what I mean? Like that that's pretty good, I think. It's like I think they could have taken nothing. I mean, I wonder if they going into the deal would have thought that they had to pay something to get rid of those eight million dollars. Yeah, I think there was definitely uh probably a point where that was a conversation, but finding a team that also had a player they wanted to unload ended up uh, working out and got him prospect back in the return, as you said. Thinking about the the big pitchers that were on the move. Generally, because so many teams that trade for top-end pitching don't have a full rotation, you don't really expect anyone of consequence to get bumped. But if the Rangers get healthy in their rotation, that probably means Dane Dunning is an extra guy at some point before the end of the season. And as much as you look at the skills and keep saying, this isn't going to last, this isn't going to last, he's been important to fantasy players this year, right? So once Nathan Evaldi's healthy, I think Dunning is the next starter out of this rotation in Texas as a result of Max Scherzer's arrival. Well, I hope that anybody has been depending on him has been very lightly depending on him because a 15.5% strikeout rate is ridiculously low and uh, reminds the entire package reminds me it's not the same because it's not the same pitches, but it reminds me a little bit of the Cal Quantrill situation where you're like, how can he do this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not a lot of swinging strikes, even in the past from Dane Dunning, We've seen 10% swinging strike rates. This year, he's under 8%. Tons of contact. Not like he went straight to the sinker and has a 60% ground ball rate. Somehow his ground ball rate got worse too. So I wouldn't have depended on Dane Dunning. I would have. I would just be happy banking with whatever you've gotten to date. Um, nice to see Andrew Haney shove last time mm-hmm. out. Uh, and uh, I did almost raise an eyebrow you said something about starting Haney over somebody in the playoffs. Um, let's see. The playoff rotation, if you were making it as of right now. And Haney you're over Montgomery. I think it's Haney over Montgomery, yeah. It's got to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who just hate Haney. I mean, they just think that he under under uh, underdoes his peripherals. And, uh, you know, I can see it. Career four five three ERA despite a career twenty five percent walk strikeout rate and seven percent walk rate. Like there is something there where you got a career one point six homers per nine from Haney. So 
I don't know. I, uh, yeah, Montgomery doesn't have that kind of problem. So I don't know. I don't know. One of them, one of them will be a little bit more situational, I think, in the playoffs. But that's not for us to worry about, I guess, on a fantasy show. I think they're both in the rotation when everyone's healthy. Yeah, and I think you can pretty easily stack up you know, one of those guys behind someone else, have them go through the lineup one time or one and a half times, and maybe get the best of both worlds that way. Um, the Andrew Heaney flaw is always home runs. That's always the mm-hmm. concern. So maybe it's a more matchup dependent sort of thing too. You know, maybe you decide they're both left. Yeah, figure out what. Yeah, figure out what it is that you know where what types of players get the home runs off of him and and avoid those. And yeah, maybe Haney and Montgomery are both. Uh, you know, just uh, you know. Behind Scherzer, Gray, and Evaldi, and you know, if Evaldi gets in trouble in the third in the playoff game, here comes Haney. I want to talk about a former Ranger with you for a moment. Spencer Howard gets traded to the Yankees, quickly optioned to AAA, and, and Howard was a pitching prospect we were excited about a few years ago, previously traded from the Phillies to the Rangers. We've seen the Yankees make some tweaks with plenty of pitchers over the years, and Howard certainly has raw talent. It just has not come together for him at the big league level. He's been up and down now around injuries, parts of four different seasons, ERA for his career up over seven, just below a strikeout per inning, the 109 Ks and 115 innings. What adjustments do you think the Yankees could make to potentially get something out of Spencer Howard, either down the stretch or possibly in 2024? Well, I mean, the good news is that his fastball still rates above average. Uh, and, uh, an interesting facet of this is, uh, that, um, over at Fangraphs, it just registers him as having a fastball and change, but I have him in the minor leagues throwing fastball cutter curve and change. The cutter was close to league average. So you could just turn him into a reliever that throws fastball curveball and get basically a league average righty reliever and get him under team control for a while, you know? Um, and I don't know, uh, what, what they can do beyond, but I will say that they have a pretty good track record with hard sliders. The old Luis Severino hard sliders, uh, was wicked. And they've had a few guys that have thrown these, these hard gyro sliders that have had good success. So I could see them coaching that up somehow. Yeah. And the success for Howard really kind of petered out sometime around AAA in 2021, even going down the time since then, it hasn't been nearly as good as we'd seen earlier in his career. But decent strikeout numbers as recently as 2022 at that level, 28.7% K rate last year as a member of the Rangers organization while pitching at AAA Round Rock. So worth watching him for more for next season, I think, than anything else. Could end up being a high leverage guy out of the pen. If they start him and give him a long window over these final two months to keep working in that capacity, that opens up some interesting possibilities as well. But a nice lottery ticket. We saw the White Sox do the same sort of thing with Luis Patino, and I'm getting close to the point of just accepting that I was probably too excited about Luis Patino going back as far as 2021. What do you think the White Sox are going to do with Patino? Given their needs, I would imagine they give him a couple of chances to start both the end of this season and probably going into next season. What are the possible outcomes based on what we've seen from Patino in flashes, both at the big league level and you know, kind of extensively at AAA this year? I don't know. Like he's 
he's gotten just he's just gotten worse. You know, like uh, he was in 2020, he was averaging 96.7 on the four seam. He's down to 94.9 now, and that's in relief. So you would assume that if he was starting, it's probably more like 93 and a half. And 93 and a half for a starter is is like league average-ish. Uh, you know, and the slider has also just changed shape. It's It's been, he's had like two or three different sliders, it looks like. So, um, you know, I, 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 I would say this, why not? You know, like this is a team that should try that. And if their pitching coach said that he saw something that he liked, yeah, go get him. I don't, I think they gave up cash for him or something. Like it wasn't, it was a very small deal. And this is a team that needs pitching of all sorts. You know, you can be a reliever for them. They just traded away half the relievers, you know? Uh, So I, I think it was a good move, even if I don't know exactly what I would do with Luis Patino to unlock it. Yeah, I mean, you think about Patino also as a guy that's been around for a few years. He's going to be out of minor league options going into next season. A team like the White Sox can afford to deal with that. That's why the Rays were just like, yeah, you can have him. Yep, and given that the Rays had him in the organization for three years, couldn't figure out how to unlock him, it kind of makes sense why they'd give up on him. Uh, But I did like that as one of the few dart throws that the the White Sox actually made uh, coming out of the deadline they had another starter that went on on Tuesday that you thought was a little bit interesting. Uh, so what what do you make of, of Jesse Schultons? I mean, he's geez, he's twenty nine years old, so this is this is really just a, a short term stopgap in the rotation until other guys are ready. But do you think Schultons actually has some appeal, at least in like AL only leagues, as a starter for these final two months? Maybe I, I like the breaking ball, uh, and he did have he had two breaking balls. Uh, and uh, I liked which one did I like better? Um, I think it was the uh, the curve. Uh, but just having two breaking balls that he you could play off of off of each other. He was doing a pretty decent job of that. Um, he has a 17 inches of uh, induced vertical break, which is decent. But um, we've seen around the league that. Uh, the new 17 is 18 or whatever. <laughs> like, uh, in order to stay ahead of hitter training, uh, the, the goal, the fence posts have moved. The goal posts have moved. You have to have a higher IVB than that. So it's a pretty blah, uh, fastball with blah ish movement and 92 and a half, uh, you know, mile per hour velocity. So, um, you know, he was, he was up a little bit above that yesterday, but I think that was, that was kind of debutish, uh, adrenaline. Uh, we haven't seen him sit, uh, 93 plus, um, you know, so I think for an extended period of time. So I, I think he's more of an, I think I agree with your overall idea that he's a, he's a only league kind of player. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I asked the followers at the Rates and Barrels Twitter account what their favorite deal from this year's trade deadline window was. Uh, a lot of these are pretty much the deal that uh, the team I root for made. Uh, Joaquin <laughs> had Scott Barlow for Henry Williams. I do think that's a nice addition to the Padres pen, just getting a bit deeper there. Uh, I think Benjamin was tro- trolling you with the uh, Joe Boyle for Sam Mall trade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael said the Aaron Savali for Kyle Manzardo being the rare one-for-one big leaguer prospect swap. That was a fun one just because like it was that. Yeah. unexpected, but it definitely they seems like it helps for both five prospects, you know. Yeah. Uh, backhand grab wrote, I think Fujinami to Baltimore and Paul DeYoung to the Jays will provide the largest difference based on expectations at this time when you look back once the offseason begins. Paul DeYoung might actually play even if the Beau Bichette knee injury heals quickly because second base is kind of one of those revolving door spots for the Jays and as well. versus lefties. They yeah. haven't been amazing versus lefties. They tried to get better uh, by getting Kiermaier and... Uh, some other some other pieces to to be better against right, uh, against lefties, but uh, they're still not as good against lefties, which is why I would not uh, trust one year reverse hitter platoon splits. Please don't do that. Darren Nola liked the uh, Josh Bell Khalil Watson swap that we uh, we brought up a little earlier, and then the the squirm, yeah, the, the wiggle, the wiggle. Uh, one bad neighbor comes up with burger for Jake Eater. I like yeah. that too because Jake Eater's coming off Tommy John surgery right now. We talk all the time about how much pitching the Marlins have. You know, you look how at him as a, the White Sox don't have. <laughs> yeah, a 6-4 lefty who is pitching at double A already is pretty close to big league ready. He's been pitching really well recently too. At least 7Ks I think in four of his last five starts before Eater? this trade went down. Yeah, so I it might be clicking for him again. I like that quite and a bit. The reason Burger was so expensive was that he's so cheap. You know, he's not even ARB eligible till 2026. And I guess the reason the White Sox thought they could let him go is he's already 27. So he's a little bit late bloomer. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, but I do like it for the Marlins. I, like they don't care if he's a late bloomer. They just want him for his 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 team control years. They don't care that he's a little bit flawed in terms of strikeout rate. They just want that you know sweet sweet barrel rate and. He's he's he hits the ball hard. Yeah, hits the ball so hard that a 225 BABIP doesn't quite make sense. So I think mm-hmm. you can pretty easily see where the the slash line so far versus the rest of season projections, like where they're askew. It's what's happened on the balls in play. And the reason you trade for Berger is because of the balls he can put out of play into the seats, right? Like that's this, a clear look skill. At this. Bat X projection for Berger, 256, 317, 502. Yeah, please. It's real good. So 
I guess the question a lot of people would have is how much does the park change hurt him? It hurts a little, but that's big time power. That's that's not power that needs a neutral Solarish. environment or needs a hitter. Fr- yeah, it's it's more like a Solaire kind of power for Jake Berger. So I wouldn't worry too much about the new environment uh, sapping the power for a guy that is on like a mid 40s home run pace on a per game basis this year. So I like that trade. Just fun for both sides, given organizational needs. I think the White Sox were right to go ahead and, and move Berger, though, because you can find guys with similar skills relatively easily. It's harder to find pitching. If Jake Eater's healthy, finding a guy like that is harder than finding another Jake Berger. I did see some people lamenting that we might not see Berger qualify at second base, but I don't know. The Marlins seem a little more open-minded about where guys play defensively. I wouldn't think Joey Wendell's a shortstop. They do. They move Jazz Chisholm to center field, which that I could get on board with pretty quickly. Like he has the the raw athleticism to play, I think, anywhere on the diamond. That's a very fair statement to make about Jazz, but they might not be as averse to playing Berger in the middle infield if they need him at second base based on everything else on that roster. Well, I mean, you know, one of my favorite trades were the trades that the Mets made where they just bought prospects. Um and I, I think it uh, took some cojones to, uh, to sell as brazenly as they did, basically. Um, I, don't, I think that kind of takes them out of the running for Shohei Otani, but maybe you know, this year's $500 million payroll you know, already took them out of that, even though the owner said he didn't care. So um, you know, I love looking behind trades like that for opportunity. I'm just not sure that... Uh, at least with the first batch of call-ups that we saw a great opportunity for a great player that I'm really excited about in New York City. Uh, you know, it looks like a Rafael Ortega, DJ Stewart platoon <laughs> in left field. I'm yeah. not really interested in either of those guys. Mark Vientos should get some more playing time. Um, he's looked pretty bad defensively and... Uh, Though he hits the ball super hard, uh, the strikeout rate is bad, and he hasn't walked. So uh, the the uh, I mean, he has walked. Vientos has walked literally, but like he hasn't isn't walking like he was in the minors. But I think you know if they gave him full burn, we could have a low batting average, uh, decent OBP, high slugging uh, package out of Vientos, and I think it behooves them to play him as often as possible to figure out where he can play defensively for them in the future and what his true talent looks like. Um, and so I'm hoping they play Vientos more, maybe in left field over that, um, that poor platoon, uh, maybe in, in a DH over Vogelbach, who's okay, but he's not a foundational piece for any team. I don't think so. Um, I'm interested to see how much Vientos plays. And I think, you know, that's the name that could establish himself in the next two months in New York City. Do you think it's weird that Adam Adovino didn't get traded and that Brooks Raley didn't get traded and that Drew Smith didn't get traded? Yeah, well, at least Drew Smith has another year on there. And I guess, uh, and I think they'll keep those guys around. But it is interesting that once you trade away Verlander and Scherzer, who were under contract for next year, that uh, it didn't go full uh, raised earth. I mean, the White Sox pretty much traded away anybody who was a rental, or you know, that wasn't under free agent, under contract for next season. And so you would have expected that Adovino, Adovino would have gone. 
Um, I, maybe there just wasn't that much interest. I, I, I don't know why, because like, think of the Diamondbacks. Why wouldn't the Diamondbacks add Seawald and Ottavino? You know? Right. Yeah. There's you. You can't tell me that of all the contenders out there, that Adam Ottavino is not good enough to be the fourth or fifth guy out of the pen for all of them. I mean that that's just kind of weird to me. Maybe it's picking some nits, but if you're the Mets, I imagine the next set of moves. I mean, Starling Marte eventually comes off the IL, plays a lot. That chews up some of the time that Ortega and Stewart might get in the short term. Viento should be the DH. What are you doing holding on to Daniel Vogelbach? No options left. You're, you're gonna second year of, of arbitration keep him around like no like why why would you do that unless you love him in the clubhouse or something there's just no there's no real justification for giving him playing time right now when you need to figure out how good mark vientos is and whether or not vientos is part of your next core so it does seem like they're going to try and play the middle in 2024 instead of going splashy they've got spots in the rotation that have to be addressed you have to think about them too as a team sort of like texas one-off season ago, right? When they they made additions, they weren't quite ready to go to the postseason. Sometimes the players available in free agency are only going to be available that one year. So you have to sign the multi-year deals before you're ready to push all the chips in. And even when you think about it this way, they didn't deal Pete Alonso. He's got one more year before they have to extend him. They've got Lindor on the long-term deal. They've got Nimmo, Beatty and Alvarez, two good young players. Alvarez has been fantastic. Beatty, it's still more of a wait and see. They're not bad as it stands right now, and that's without trying to replace some of the the veterans, the Eduardo Escobars, the Canas, the Fams. Like they're gonna take a bunch of shots throughout free agency. They're probably gonna make a couple of trades this offseason. There's a lot of things they're gonna do to keep tweaking this roster. So even though it might not be just, as splashy as we've seen so far, doesn't mean they're gonna just give up. Yeah. Uh given their respective ages and quality levels, I, I just wouldn't play Ortega and Stewart that much. Uh, if Marte comes back, you nimmo Marte, Vientos and left. And I don't care. You you know, you there's a, a weird thing going on where they lose they don't get any lottery balls if they're you know if they're in the top twenty or something in record at the end of the year. So like they really should tank. And one of the ways that you can tank while actually playing players and learning is playing people out of position or playing bad defenders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know play, I mean? play Mark Vientos in the field. Play Mark Vientos in the field. And A, you'll get information on can he play in the field next year? <laughs> and B, you'll give him every day at bats and you'll get can he play in your lineup next year? And that's... That's what a bad team should be doing, you know. Uh, that's what the Red Sox did when they were in a little bit of a mini rebuild, and uh, they tried to. You, you find players, you you get more information on the players you do have. Uh, play David Peterson, start David Peterson every five days, you know, uh, and find out if he's a reliever or starter for you, you know, because you have to figure that out. Yeah, no, I think that's the right way. I mean, playing time when you're not contending is a valuable currency. I, I think you could probably talk yourself into giving Ronnie Mauricio a look. That'd be more interesting from a fantasy perspective than a lot of the other seat yeah. fillers, right? I mean, Danny Mendick doesn't move the needle. NL only league, sure. Anybody who plays, but Ronnie Mauricio at least has the chance to be a, a relevant player in mixed leagues if they decide to bring him up and give him some run at second base. I so. wonder if there's a reverse incentive. You know, we have these new rules that if you bring up a guy uh you know early enough to win the rookie of the year you get a pick in the draft or whatever and that does incentivize 
um, you know, earlier in the year call-ups, but it also disincentivizes late in the year call-ups. It does at this point in the calendar, but if you can do it a little September later 1st, and keep yeah. the rookie of the year eligibility for the following season intact, that might be where the timing ends up falling into place for a guy like Ronnie Mauricio. I mean, it wouldn't be a front runner for rookie of the year, but it's also not the the most outlandish thing. I imagine you also like the prospects the Mets got back overall. I mean, we talked about Acuna a lot earlier in the week, but Drew Gilbert, getting him from Houston, what's your overall outlook on him? This is a difficult place to hit, as we've talked about many times, and I'm curious where you fall on Gilbert as far as his uh, true talent ceiling. Well, you know, two no top 50 prospects were traded deadline by almost any list. And we did see kind of three or four in the 50 to 60 range, 50 to 75, depending on what list you're looking at. Carrero, uh, the uh, catcher to the White Sox. I think he'll be one of the further ones away because you're talking about a catcher. You're talking about a catcher who some people think aren't, aren't sure he can really catch that well. So I think there's going to be a little bit of time there for Caro. I think, therefore, that Acuna, Manzardo, and Gilbert are the other three that are in that package, in that group of you know 50 to 75 uh, prospects. And all three of them seem like they're pretty close. And the reason I say this for Gilbert, despite a 92 WRC plus at double A this year, is there's an injury in there where he was DHing. And I read the story about how from Chandler Rome about how uh, he's a very energetic uh, a player and that, you know, coming off the bench, you know, he's like a passionate, emotional player that if he is not doing well at the plate, he'll go out and make a spectacular catch in center field and feel better about himself. You know what I mean? And he didn't quite have that outlet uh, as a DH. Plus, we know that uh, just DHing versus playing in the field is worth uh, 10 points of WRC+. So now you're talking about 102 WRC plus for a 22-year-old in double-A. So now you're actually talking about a 127 WRC plus uh, for, for Drew Gilbert. So once you sort of make some of those adjustments to his numbers, and uh, I think, you know, he had like zero home runs for a stretch. Uh, now he's got six homers and six stolen bases. I think Drew Gilbert is someone we could see in the big leagues next year. Um, I think Acuna is the same. I mean, you're you're... With the Luis Angel Acuna, you're like waiting for the power, but um, I think the defense is polished enough that you say, you know, if there is a need, um, you just say, hey, you know, we need a, we, you're better than uh, Luis Guillorme. And, you know, you're making the roster. I do think the thing we've learned about the Mets coming out of this deadline is things that previous owners, other owners really wouldn't do being willing to eat lots of money that's on the table right so players that are signed to mega deals so starling marte just you know starling marte could DFA him. <laughs> they could dfa him or, or trade him and eat a bunch McNeil of money goes to the outfield and we saw acuna is the starting second baseman next year that's not impossible Right. And I think, geez, even a few years from now, Francisco Lindor, like the the contract he signed with the Mets, like my confidence level that he's there for all of it is as low as it's been at any point since he signed it. Right. Like that's, well, that's, that's weird because his production is, is pretty steady. Right. But he signed through 2031. 
Yeah. So if you get to, <laughs> and if you start to think about this team maybe being capable of, of learning from some of its mistakes, like just throwing huge piles of money out, bidding people for free agents, extending players this long, maybe they're going to realize that's not actually what great organizations do. This is this is stuff that the Angels do, and we don't want to be like that. Uh, and this is not me trying to talk down about Francisco Lindor, but this is the fourth straight season in which the OPS has been below 800. He's already 29, 30 in November. How long is he a shortstop, right? So if you want to get out in front of that, while there's still other teams interested in taking Lindor back in a trade, you might not have to eat as much money. So I don't know. Like mm-hmm. I, I just I wonder if they, if they would look at him as as somebody that they actually could move sooner rather than later and and kind of again part of this bigger adjustment for their organizational expectations decide yeah you know what this this wasn't the way we wanted to do it this wasn't the player we wanted to sign for this long we actually would rather extend some guys that we're trading for extend some of our prospects on long-term deals and try and save money that way as opposed to paying market value and above for aging shortstops and other stars Billy Epler told Max Scherzer in a piece by Ken Rosenthal that was very interesting and seemed very uh, spilling the beans. <laughs> uh, he said that Billy Epler told him uh, that the plan was for 2025. So uh, I think Lindor is still a shortstop in 2025, and uh, I think that he can still be a foundational piece if if the window is thought to be 2025, 2026. But it is interesting that in 2025, 2026, he will be, what, 32? Yep. Uh, you know, 32, 30, 33. He's a, he's a November birthday. So he'll basically be 31, 32. Traditionally, people move off a shortstop by 32. You know, it's it's a bit of a marker. The, the, the ones that don't are, you know, legendary defensive shortstops that are ma- and manage to play there because they're, still okay like brandon crawford yeah i mean that could be lindor he could just be a worse defensive uh shortstop uh and still still play there but the uh defensive numbers have been going down a little bit too yeah and that's gonna have to stay at least at its current level if he's going to remain a well above average all-around player right the projection zips has that three-year projection you go to 2025 They've got Lindor at a 21, 21 homer, 10 steal, 247, 321, 415. 4.6 war. And the 4.6 war, I think, is dependent on him still being a shortstop. It assumes that he's still a shortstop and he's still a good shortstop or at least an above average one. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think we have to we have to look at the Mets differently. Just seeing what they did with Scherzer and Verlander. Because there was a point two months ago where I think most people would have said, those guys aren't going anywhere. Why would they go anywhere? They're going to continue to I've, try and I win said, every single year. I said it. I said they wouldn't trade uh, their two guys because they're under contract for next year. Right. I just didn't think they'd punt a season. And I even if they're not the fully punting, surprise. they're they're the willing to. Of the of the trade deadline for sure. They're just willing to pay a premium for prospects back in a trade, and that's pretty unusual. It's it's yeah. like instead of overpaying in free agency, they might be overpaying to get some they prospects did. in that organization. I think we ran the numbers on the on the three O show, the, the the trade deadline show, and uh, for Acuna, 
what were the they had three prospects they got in the in the big deals it was Acuna uh, Drew Gilbert and then it was uh 250s and a 45 and by uh driveline that would be worth uh 65 to 70 million and they're paying 90 million of uh Scherzer and Verlander so it's a quote-unquote overpay but again they don't care Ryan Clifford was the other player yeah he was the 45 future value by Fangraphs. Uh, did you also account for the money saved on the luxury tax in 2024, mm. though? Because that that's like a unique to the Mets circumstance. You know, that could be $30 million, yeah. Which then sort of shifts it back into normal market cost of acquiring a prospect. Yeah, it's weird because the, the other teams got the $90 million, so it is still an overpay, but on the outgoing balance sheets for the Mets, like if, you know, it's actually 70, you know? <laughs> so. Some breaking news, uh, not uh, massive breaking news, but it looks like Brian Rocchio has been recalled by the Guardians. Thank you. I was watching those Arias at-bats, uh, you know, for the, for the Guardians, and I was not super impressed. Yeah, what do they always say on Twitter? Announce Manzardo, cowards. Like, that's, the, <laughs> that's, that's what we're waiting for now. But I'm hoping, I, I think, you know, uh, listen, Gabriel Arias is not terrible, uh, but the strikeout rate it just it doesn't make him a Guardians-type player. And even though he has some good raw power, he has not tapped into it barrel-wise. And, you know, he has an option. So I would say... And give Rokio the full chance. Since I've got the prospect news tab from Rotowire open right now, I just saw there was a story about Mason Wynn probably getting called up mid to late August, right? Cardinals not contending right now, so they'll wait. Why, preserve, what's, the, what's the idea? Preserving rookie of the year status for next uh, year and giving Wynn some opportunities. Yep. I, I, I mean, I like that. I like that as a way of getting a better sense of what you've got going into next season. I think based on on talent, how good of a defender he's going to be at shortstop, there's plenty of reason to believe he could stick once he gets the chance. Uh, he's approaching a, a 2020 season at AAA right now. 16 homers, 16 steals with a 281, 354, 462 line, and he's just 21 years old. So you know, I was yeah, I was worried about some of the power numbers. I just I finally, if anybody's been following along, the, the, my great Max Muncy caper. Uh, I finally traded away Max Muncy and uh, I got the prospect rights to Mason Wynn and <laughs> is that clapping? It was gentle as a golf clap. <laughs> I got the prospect rights to Mason Wynn and Jonathan Aranda um, and I, I I was looking at Wynn for a while being like well, I don't love these ISOs uh, it's you know, it's more like an 8% walk rate, 20% strikeout rate package where I'd love him more if it was like 10% walk rate, 16% strikeout rate. But he kind of flirts with both of those numbers. And then I just looked up back to the age. And you said 21 years old in AAA with a 102 WRC+. plus. This is a classic situation where the numbers don't wow you, but he's 21 in AAA. He's knocking on the door. He's hit a ball 110 He's hitting the ball kind of hard and, you know, a 31% stri- uh, hard hit rate is good enough for me. And he's 21. So, you know, it's like this is this is actually a pretty good prospect. I'd really like to see, maybe I can track this down after we're recording and uh, actually bring it up on a future project prospect. But I'd like to see 
where Mason Wynn hits his home runs. My my guess, and I haven't watched him play this year, I haven't been able to do that. My guess is he's pulling the ball for his homers. He's not hitting them to all fields. It's probably mostly pull side power right now. My reason for believing that is because the overall hard hit rate is 30.7%. That's the fan graphs number. Not alarmingly bad. Not so high that you're expecting to scald the ball all the time. But my general thesis when it comes to players who are young for the level, who don't hit the ball hard yet, is to not panic about it. Because you can get stronger and hit the ball hard. If you have good bat to ball, good enough hit tool, that's a lot to, to like from a foundational standpoint. And again, he plays an important defensive position where the glove is good. The arm is just unbelievable. Might have the best arm at shortstop in the league once he gets promoted. I think there's a lot more to like than to dislike with not, Mason Wynn. Not hitting 50% ground balls either. Right. That's the other thing. We would talk about that on, on Project Prospect yesterday when you're looking for the guys that you want to project for at least average power, like 15 to 20 home run power in the big leagues, guys that don't pound the ball to the ground. That's a good core yeah. skill to look for. And that's been Mason Wynn so far at that ground ball rate under 40%. We are going to go on our way out the door. Just a reminder, if you'd like a subscription to The Athletic, $2 a month gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can read the trade deadline recaps, all the other great content we've got. We've got fantasy football coming up here in just about a month. Well, that season's coming up quick. Women's World Cup going on. What's going on with the U.S. women's national team? Find out. The Athletic has you covered. $2 a month at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.